Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. All right, welcome everyone to the Abundant Edge podcast. Before we get started today, my friend Trey Abernethy, who's been interviewed on this podcast before, an excellent bamboo builder, has a brand new course coming up, so I'm going to let him tell you all about it. Join us this April 30th through May 8th for an immersive dive into the world of bamboo design and building. In this week-long comprehensive course, we will cover design and model making, anatomy and species, harvesting, processing, and treatment, bamboo nail and pin making, lashing and joining techniques, tools and safety, furniture building, and much more. During the week, we will construct a small bamboo structure from start to finish. The course will be held at Rama Organica in the Diamante Valley, Costa Rica. All food served is organic, vegan, and locally sourced. There will be daily yoga and movement classes offered, and we will cap off the week with a cacao ceremony and ecstatic dance with our friend Elementalism. For more information and registration, visit naturalbuildingcr.com. Welcome, everybody. All right, we're continuing with this ongoing series on homesteading. And so I reached out to Deborah Neiman, the author of many books, including Homegrown and Handmade, Eco Thrifty, Just Kidding, as in kids with little goat kids, and Raising Goats Naturally, which is now in its second edition. She also blogs at thriftyhomesteader.com, hosts the podcast For the Love of Goats, and co-owns Antiquity Oaks, a small farm in Cornell, Illinois. Like nearly everyone in this interview series, Deborah didn't grow up on a farm or homestead lifestyle at all. Her transition to a healthier and more earth-connected way of living led her to teach others how to care for animals, grow their own food, and much more. In this episode, I talk with Deborah about how realistic it is for someone to hope to produce all their own food and how much time it takes her and her husband each week to produce 100% of their own meat, eggs, maple syrup, and dairy products, as well as a good portion of their own vegetables, fruits, herbs, and honey. We also dissect her book, Homegrown and Handmade, to understand some of the most important considerations and plans that she recommends for people looking to get started in a whole range of small farm enterprises like market gardening, small orchards, micro-dairy, meat animals, poultry, fiber, and sugar production. She's tried them all. This is a really inspiring interview for people who think that you need a whole team, a bunch of machinery, or a ton of land to produce an abundance of a wide range of products. Deborah does a great job of breaking things down into manageable steps that you can follow to grow and develop your homestead operations sustainably. The best part is that listeners of this show will have the opportunity to win a free copy of Deborah's book, Homegrown and Handmade. And here's how it works. Just leave a review of the Abundant Edge podcast on iTunes and take a screenshot of your review. From there, send it to info at AbundantEdge.com along with the address where you'd like to receive your mail, and I'll send a book to the first person I receive an email from. For those of you who live outside the U.S. or Canada, you can just send an email and we'll send you a digital copy. And if you don't win this time, don't worry, I'll be giving away tons more books from New Society Publishers this season, so stay tuned each week for your chance to win more books. 
And if you've already left a review on iTunes, you can share this episode on your preferred social media platform, take a screenshot, and send an email just the same. These steps really help us to reach a larger audience with this information and message of actionable steps that anyone can take towards ecological regeneration, and so I really appreciate all of you who've been helping me to get the word out. I'll be looking forward to your emails, and I'll send that book out real soon. Now I'll hand things over to Deborah. All right, welcome Deborah to the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Tell me a little bit about how you got started into homesteading and what that transition was like for you. My husband and I had been talking about moving to the country for a long time, but we didn't really have any direction. And once I saw this, it basically gave us a reason to, to do it. You know, it wasn't just this airy fairy, oh, let's move to the country and grow our own food organically. It was, wow, we can help save these rare breeds of livestock from extinction. And so at that point, we got very serious about looking for land. And um, within a few more years, we moved to the country. I think so many people can relate to that um, for kind of aspiring to this different lifestyle and, you know, maybe not making the transition as quickly as you did, but, you know, aspiring to move towards this direction. What were some of your own, I guess, primary motivators to really want to make this big of a change in your life? It all started with our health, really. Like, that's why we had talked about it before. We had become vegetarians in the late 80s after I discovered the realities of factory farming. I was horrified to find out that, you know, chickens lived in buildings instead of running around outside. And so we quit eating meat and we wanted to be vegans, but it was really hard in the 80s and 90s to be vegans because the world just wasn't set up that way you know like if you eat out if you wanted something vegetarian it was going to have cheese and eggs in it because that's just about all there was um because i didn't like the fact that like laying hens were de-beaked and kept in big buildings either or that you know cows were kept in buildings 12 months a year and had their babies taken away from them but you really you know in the 90s you really didn't have many options and we wanted healthier food. And so the idea of moving to the country to grow our own food organically seemed like, really seemed like our only option, you know, because we didn't have enough money to be able to shop at the health food store and to always buy directly from farmers and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another one that a lot of people really resonate with. I know other people who have, we've done interviews with for this series health was a big primary motivator for their transition as well, either at the health of members of their family or their own directly. How has that changed as you've changed the way that you, you live and produce what you consume? Well, <coughs> it's really, <coughs> sorry. I know, no, it's terrible. We're talking about health right now and you have a cold. That's, that's a bad segue, but in general. I know. You can edit all those coughs out. <laughs> don't worry about so, it. So, um, yeah, because I don't normally, I get a cold like once every five years. Um, being out here as we get older has definitely made us really committed to this concept because it's, and also being a writer, like I know it's so easy for me just to spend every day sitting in front of a computer. When I'm traveling sometimes, 
you know, um, I've got one of these fancy smartwatches. And when I'm traveling, sometimes there are days when I may only get 1500 or 2000 steps because I'm just in front of the computer all day long. You know, sure, I sure. just, I'm just going to the bathroom, going to the kitchen and that's about it. Um, but on the farm, you know, like in the late afternoon when it's time to feed the animals, you have to feed the animals. You have to get away from the computer and go do that. And I mean, I knew that exercise was important when we lived in the suburbs still, but I tried and failed at just about everything because it all seemed really um, fake to me. I did not feel, it didn't feel like honest exercise. You know, it's like, oh, I'm just going to walk around my neighborhood just to get exercise. Just for the sake gonna, of it, sure. Right. Yeah. Or I'm going to walk on a treadmill to nowhere or bike on a stationary bike to nowhere. and. I tried, <coughs> I even went and um, like joined a health club because I thought, well, I just need to make a financial commitment, you know, and, and that didn't do it either. So it, it was frustrating that I couldn't do it, even though I knew that that, like, that was really important. And when we first moved out here, I was 39 at the time and I couldn't even lift a 50 pound bag of grain. I couldn't carry a five gallon water bucket and you know now i can do all those things no problem that's you know that's so important and it's one of those things you don't realize that you're missing it until <laughs> until you see the contrast right mm -hmm. um but let's let's kind of start with the basics to give people an idea mm -hmm. of how you're living because obviously a, a homestead can be anything depending on the person who defines it so give me some right. context as to how you're living and what systems you have established on your farm in Antiquity Oaks in Illinois? Well, we have a modern house, which we actually built ourselves, literally. Um, usually when somebody says they built their house, that means that they hired a bunch of people. And in this case, it means that my husband was pretty much out here swinging a hammer most of the time. Impressive. Um, we had the basement dug out. We hired somebody to do the basement because that required big, heavy equipment. Um, and we um, hired somebody to do the insulation and because um, that was a blown-in um, insulation that required special equipment again. Um, since my husband has cancer and his, both his mom and dad have had cancer, he's had cancer. I'm like, I don't want him dealing with fiberglass or anything that is potentially carcinogenic. So the insulation was done by somebody else and it's a cellulose. It's, it's ground up newspapers. And then we have in-floor heating and that had to be, um, the gypcrete in the floor had to be poured by somebody else. Other than that, like he is the one who built all the walls, um, nailed together all the two by fours with an old fashioned hammer. Um, I gave myself carpal tunnel, putting up drywall. <laughs> Our kids helped us um, with stuff that did not require as much skill as what my husband did. For the most part, most of it, we got built and we, we moved in six months after breaking ground. Um, 15 years later, it's still not done. <laughs> like, you know, you move in and you don't have trim around your windows or you don't have baseboards and you just get used to that. It kind of becomes your new normal. Sure, sure. And there's like a million other things. Like some days it really bugs me and I'm like, we've got to get this finished. And, but most of the time I don't even notice it because I've been staring at it like this for 15 years. Oh, usually I notice it what you get used to. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And usually I notice it when we're about to have company. 
Yeah, 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 right. When you start thinking about who else is going to see it and it's not normal for them. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. listeners of this podcast will remember like all the things that we talked about uh, while I was building the house for me and my former colleagues in Guatemala. And uh-huh. that was a bamboo house with earthen walls. And I mean, I I moved out of it before it was completely finished. But I mean, between not just all of the extra little jobs that needed to get done, but with constant different opinions from different people about which order that should happen in, it was uh-huh. really hard to move, especially once the the essentials were taken care of and people kind of got used to it. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I can only imagine. So look, um, as far as enterprises then, aside from the house, what do you really dedicate uh, or kind of how do you divide up your time to, um, to keeping that place running? Basically, we um, just have to do all the daily chores for all the animals. We've got sheep, goats, pigs, um, and chickens. We used to, we really had everything before. Um, we had cattle for over 10 years, which we finally gave up on because they were just big and scary. And as our kids started moving away, I was afraid that they were going to get out one day when I was home alone. And I had no idea how I would get them back if I was by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got rid of the cows, um, but we did, so we did, um, grass fed beef for, um, about 10 years and now we have grass fed lamb and goat and chicken and eggs. The main thing we sell right now is we sell eggs at a grocery store. Okay. So a lot of the income is not directly coming from animal products. No, well, we also sell freezer beef, freezer meat. So we okay. sell the the whole animal, and then take it to the locker for somebody. And then, so instead of buying, you know, like a package of ground pork, they buy a pig, and you know the pig winds up weighing 150 pounds, and they pay us four dollars and fifty cents a pound for that pig. And then they tell the locker what they want them to do with it, and the locker turns it into whatever they want, you know, if that includes sausage or bacon or ham or, you know, if they just want it all ground up to be ground pork or whatever. Nice. It's a really good, a very efficient system cutting out all those middlemen. So, okay. So let's focus a little bit on your book, Homegrown and Handmade. Um, In there, you claim that you produce a hundred percent of your own meat, eggs, maple syrup, and dairy products, as well as a really good portion of your vegetables, your fruit, herbs, and honey. Now, Mm -hmm. while I know that represents a big part of the goals of people who idealize the homesteading lifestyle, that's a really (coughs) tall stack for for anyone to achieve. Can you give me an idea about how much time, land, and investment it's taken you to reach that point of of self-sufficiency? Well, we have 32 acres, but we honestly, we could do what we wanted to do on 10 acres. We overbought because we thought we needed this much. Um, And our property has a creek that runs through it, which essentially made two thirds of it very difficult to use. And so we learned fairly quickly, like, oh yeah, we really don't need all those other acres. Um. And it's not, you know, it sounds challenging, but like that, because our original goal was just to grow things for ourselves. But the reason we wound up selling things is because we wound up producing more than we needed. Like if you have a pig, she's going to have, depending on what breed, she's going to have somewhere between, you know, 
five and 10 babies. And most families are not going to eat that much pork in a year. So you wind up like, oh, okay, I need to find some people who want to buy pork from us. And um, with the sheep, we realized also that, you know, well, if we, if we're going to breed them, we really don't need that many sheep. Like we started with two ewes, two pregnant ewes. And within only three or four years, we had 20 sheep Mm. because we wanted our own wool and that, which is really fun. It's a whole nother level. Um, But yeah, we're like, oh my gosh, we have 20 sheep. We don't need this much wool. (laughs) So we need to start selling it. And so that's kind of it. The whole thing, honestly, it was, was a lot easier than we were expecting it to be. And so that was how we wound up selling stuff was, because we wound up with so much more than what we needed. Mm -hmm. And so does the sale of this mostly go to justify the expenses of keeping and maintaining the animals or is there a good profit for you on, on this smaller scale? Um, It is profitable, but it's not enough to live on. Um, Cause like, it sounds like so much when you're like, Oh, you can get, um, you make what, like $700 from a pig. Like, oh my gosh, that sounds like a lot, right? $700 for one pig. Well, yeah, but then if you start doing math, well, 10 pigs is only $7,000, which kind of sounds like a lot until you think about, well, how much do I need to live for a year? Right. It's not $7,000 every month you're turning over 10 pigs. How long do you keep them there? Is it six or eight months? And it depends on what breed you have, but yeah, six would be the minimum. Right. Um, and you know, some of the breed, like we have American guinea hogs now, which is it's over a year mm. um, for them to get big enough to butcher. Yeah, and it that's not seven thousand dollars of profit. That's minus the cost of feed and mm-hmm. occasionally vet bills, or I mean, there's all sorts of things that come up in the, in the maintenance of animals. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Within that, uh, how much time investment is it for you? And, and I assume it's just your husband at this point, or do you have still some of your children living with you? Yeah. So that's the thing that got to be kind of tricky. You know, people would say, wow, that's a lot of work, isn't it? And back in the beginning, I would say, yeah, but you know what? There's five of us. So really, it's just like each person only has about 45 minutes to an hour, you know, morning and evening. And and we did. And then one child went away to college and another, another, and then you do the math on that, right? Like Mm -hmm. multiply that times five. And now you're looking at eight to 10 hours a day. Right. Total for one person. So yeah, that was where it got like, Hmm, we need to cut back. So like, that's why we, so we got rid of the cows. Um, we no longer have llamas. We no longer have horses. We no longer raise turkeys. Um, so we've really, we've really cut back on stuff. And the number that, of animals that we're raising is a lot less too. You know, like we used to have 20 does a year, 20 goats a year giving birth. And so like we'd have 50 or 60 goat kids. And now we're only breeding about six or seven every year so that we only have about 25 kids Mm. 
So from what you've learned in this process of, you know, having scaled up much larger than where you're at now, how small do you think you could reduce the farm while still producing all of the things that you get a lot of value from and, and living fairly self-sufficiently, as, at least as far as food? Oh, so that would be, yeah. Not, you don't even need very many animals at all to do that. Mm-hmm. Like we could do it, you know, like two goats and a, you know, two does and a buck. And for sheep, we could have two ewes and a ram. We could have a pair of pigs and, you know, less than a dozen chickens. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and, and we would have more than enough. So that's another whole nother layer to it, you know, because at this point, honestly, we've gotten attached to a lot of these animals. I would imagine. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I, so like right now, the, the thing is I am just, I'm retiring. You know, I used to breed my does until they were 10 years old. I'm retiring does now at six or seven years old. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, mm, yeah, okay, I guess I'm not going to breed you anymore. Sure, sure. I kept your, I, I just couldn't sell your daughter, you know, personally, emotionally, I couldn't sell your daughter. So I'm going to retire you and breed your daughter now mm. because she's so awesome. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, that's something that just comes along with uh, living and working that closely with your animals. It's inevitable that you're going to develop some kind of bond. Mm-hmm. As long as it's not right. like, you know, on a factory level. <laughs> It's just a matter of like doing it by numbers. But at that scale, you know, you're giving them names. It's, it's a much more personal relationship. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So look, your, your book is, is massively broad. You can go over so many different things. It's quite a volume. But I love how at the beginning of each chapter, you start with a planning section. And uh-huh. so let's go through a couple of the important categories and talk about the most important things to consider when planning for each. Uh, so let's start with uh, an edible garden. Okay. Um, well, for if you're going to plant a garden, the first thing I suggest that you do is make a list of what you eat because one of the big mistakes we made in the beginning was just looking in seed catalogs and buying a bunch of, buying way more stuff. You know, my when I was a little girl going to a cafeteria, I would always get more than I should. And my mom would say that my eyes were bigger than my stomach. And that is a terrible problem that I have with um, seed catalogs. <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> you know, I used to buy, I, I just felt like, oh my gosh, like tomatoes come in all these incredible colors and shapes and sizes. And, you know, I thought I needed to have kind of like one of like, oh, I need to have a, you know, a, a yellow one and an orange one and a striped red and orange one and a striped green and yellow one. and um a pear shape and a sausage shape. <laughs> like it was unreal, you know, I, um, how much stuff I would order. And so I encourage people to think about what you eat. You know, like I, I planted some stuff that we never ate. Um, we have come around, but you know, like in the early years, I remember um, having cucumbers in the garden. None of us ate cucumbers. Um, and so we, there was nothing to do with the cucumbers. We do eat cucumbers now, you know, because at one point I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. We need to eat the cucumbers. How do you, what do you do with, I didn't even know what to do with cucumbers. Um, <laughs> pickle them. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I knew that there was the whole pickling thing, but I just never got around to that. And so it was right. like, what do you do with fresh cucumbers? Um, 
And so I had to learn how to do that. And um, so after making a list of what you're going to grow. Oh, the other thing too is buy things that you can't buy in the store. Buy seeds for things you can't buy in the store. So for example, like I never grew russet potatoes or Yukon gold potatoes because they are really cheap and you can buy them in any store. So yeah. I always bought the unusual ones that either you can't buy in the store or that they want $5 a pound for. Sure, like sure. the blue potatoes and the purple potatoes. Um, because when you look at um, how much effort you put into something and how much money you're saving by growing it yourself, I'm really not motivated by knowing that I'm saving 50 cents a pound on something. Right, right. You know? Sometimes the convenience totally wins out in those. Exactly. Because I could be spending my time growing something that is astronomical, you know, like the blue potatoes. Sure. You used to not, you used to not even be able to get those in the store. Um, and you can't get my favorite tomatoes in the store either. Like Amana orange and green zebra and Cherokee purple. You can't normally find those in a store. And on the rare occasion that you can, they're usually like part of a mix or something, which is priced insanely high. Right. Yeah, for sure. I think that's, those are like my two big tips on getting started with gardening is just to make a list of what you are actually going to eat. And so what, you know, you know what you're going to do with stuff and also to grow things that are really expensive to buy or things that you can't buy at all. How much space are you using for your own garden at this point? Um, what we added, mm, okay, it kind of depends on what you're, what you're talking about, specifically what we're growing. Like the main garden, because we have little gardens all over the place too. Sure, sure. So the main garden, I think we calculated was about one seventh of an acre, which, you know, if you think that like most, a lot of suburban lots that houses sit on are, you know, like a quarter of an acre, it's probably about the size of most people's backyards. So it's not really huge. Um, but then we do, and that's where we grow most of the stuff. But then for stuff like squash and pumpkins and winter squash, like those things that just grow huge and take up tons of space and are also really good at storing, then um, we have like a whole quarter acre or half acre that we grow of just that um, mm -hmm. because just because it is so enormous. And then like we can, we grow and about half of that is pumpkins that we feed to the pigs. And then the other half of it is winter squash for us, which is like spaghetti squash, butternut squash, acorn squash. Um, which are our favorites. And the cool thing about squash is that we just put them in the basement on wire shelves and they will last you about a year. Most of them, some every now and then, you know, you'll have one that has a spot that goes bad and you have to pitch it, but most of them will last close to a year. So I know we've, we pretty much like eat squash 12 months a year. So. Yeah, no, those are fantastic. Having things that store well, are mm -hmm. such a good investment for the garden in my experience. It's like, it just, they, they keep giving. And if you've got space to keep them, it's such a good go-to. It's like, yeah, you run out yeah. of anything that those calorie dense, you're like, oh, well, we've always got these, whether it's squash, potatoes, and a lot of things that just, they keep for a really long time. Right. right so let's and I, talk. No, no, go ahead. I also think about like the nutritional value of stuff. Sure. Like everybody should be eating orange food 
on a regular basis. Um, and I don't know about other people, but I find carrots hard to grow and a pain to harvest. And whereas a butternut squash, um, you know, it's got that, it's orange, it's got lots of beta carotene in it, just like mm. carrots do. And it basically stores, it stores itself, you know, um, it's like the easiest thing in the world to grow. And then, you know, you just go out there one day, you pick them all and you put them someplace cool and they just, they're fine. And they're just there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. So um, let's talk a little bit now about the home scale orchard. What are some mm -hmm. preparations and things people should know when planning for something like an orchard? <clears throat> um, again, think about what you eat. And also, this is something that I should have thought about more. Um, and that is how, like, you probably, honestly, if you're only growing for yourself, you probably only need, like, one apple tree and one pear tree and you know, you may need to get a pollinator. You probably need to get two of each so that you've got a pollinator for it. But we planted way too many fruit trees. <laughs> you know, again, I think a lot of people think this stuff is so hard because they think that you have to have, you know, 40 acres and a mule and, you know, you have to plant <laughs> 20 fruit trees and have dozens of animals. And if you're just growing it for yourself, you really don't need that much. Yeah. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, uh, obviously there's some variables within that, how big your family is or how many, you know, people are, are part of the household. But right. yeah, I mean, think about how much fruit you eat all the time. And mm -hmm. I, one of the things that I found really useful that I've talked to orchardists is uh, try and pick varieties of each thing that mature at different times of the year. Exactly. So that you don't all of a sudden end up with like eight <laughs> different trees all uh, maturing at the same time and you could never go through that much fruit or you have to like process it all and freeze it or can it mm -hmm. or whatever to to make use of it yeah exactly yeah because like you can get apple trees that that start ripening at the end of july all the way through october so you know that's a really good piece of advice is to look at um you know so because you'll need to find pollinators you know like so see you know don't get two pollinators that are going to ripen at the same time. You know, try to find, like, try to find one that's going to ripen early and one that's going to ripen later mm -hmm. so that you can eat more of it fresh. And fresh is really good. Um, you know, we initially, the big thing we did was we made tons of jam and preserves and stuff. And ultimately, that winds up being a ton of sugar. Um, it's so much sugar. <laughs> yeah. When I first started making preserves, I was blown away. I was like, wait, there's no way that people have been eating this this long. Sugar's mm -hmm. only been cheap for like the last 200 years, maybe three. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so the big thing, so think about that. And then, but you know, like you can make applesauce with no sugar. You can just can apples with no sugar, mm -hmm. you know, and then later you can like put them on a salad um, or like just apples with like a dollop of whipped cream can be your dessert or something. Um, and that was one of the big mistakes we made early on. And you'll see in the book, there's some recipes in there that have quite a bit of sugar in them. And now we eat next to no sugar. Mm -hmm. um, because it's really, again, we're const we're thinking about our health and, and we've just discovered that like sugar is really not good for us. Um, so that's another thing to be careful about with fruit is, is thinking about, 
how to stay away. How, what do you want to grow that you will do something with other that will not require massive amounts of sugar? Yeah. Yeah, for um, sure. And so pears are one of my favorite things. Pears can extremely well with just water because they're high acid enough. They don't need anything else added to them. Um, you do it in a boiling water canner and then um, adding fresh pear to a salad is, is really delicious. Um, you know, with like a nice homemade dressing, you know, that's kind of like a mayonnaise base that you use egg for. It's really good. But trees, I mentioned this in the book that trees are like really the biggest bang for your buck because you plant them. And then if you're a real overachiever, you can prune them once a year. Or if you've got too much to do like me, you know, and you prune them once every three years, they still do fine, you know, yeah. and then <laughs> you just may feel guilty one day when a limb breaks because it's got too much fruit on it. <laughs> so they start to prune themselves if you don't do yeah. it for them. Well, think about it. Of all the problems, the things that can go wrong on a homestead, a self-pruning tree for having too much fruit is, it's not too bad. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I know. That's why I always say, because um, some of my other books are specifically about goats. And I always say the reason I learned so much about goats is because nobody cried when the broccoli died. <laughs> right? Otherwise, yeah. We'd, yeah, you'd be a broccoli expert real fast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like we had goats dying the first few years, and which was just devastating oh, to us. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And it was like, oh my gosh, I have to find out why did this happen? How can I avoid having this happen again? And so, you know, yeah, that's how I became an expert real fast. Sure. Well, on that note, then let's talk about raising animals specifically. Mm -hmm. um, I know goats, especially you've written books on and as uh, one of your expertise, but uh, let's start before getting to goats about, uh, how about poultry? Uh, poultry. Chickens are the and the gateway livestock. Yeah. <laughs> um, chickens are wonderful. <clears throat> they are so easy. I tell people, if you can handle a cat, you can handle chickens. I think chickens are very similar to cats in terms of the commitment of time and effort because, <laughs> And their you know, general indifference towards you. Unless you yeah, have food. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Um, because you, you know, so you put the chickens out there in the chicken house, you need to, you know, give them food and water and pick up eggs once a day. Not much different than feeding and watering your cat and cleaning the litter box. In fact, I mean, cleaning a litter box is way worse than picking up eggs, even oh, though they right. both come from the same end <laughs> of the animal. Eggs are much more wonderful than litter boxes. Oh, so, yeah, and the compost you get from the chicken manure is way better than trying to deal with cat litter. Oh, yeah. So I, I feel like, you know, if you were, if you've been willing to deal with a cat in your life, then a chicken is really a step up. Like it's not any harder and it is a pet with benefits mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they're fun to watch. Um, they're hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so chickens are awesome. All right. Well, uh, let's talk about animals for, for dairy production. Have you, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the obvious ones, of course, cows, Goats, less common, but increasingly common. Um, that's what we had on our farm in Guatemala. It was the major project, uh, products that we were selling was yogurt and cheese. Uh -huh. um, have you gone as far as uh, doing any sheep dairy? We actually did milk our Shetland sheep. You did? <laughs> Not very much, though. Um, I it's used harder. to say... 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. They don't make hardly any milk. (laughs) Apparently, they make enough to raise their babies, but not much more. So um, I was, um, but the sheep milk is incredible because it's so high fat and the yogurt, we made yogurt with it and it it was incredible. Um, I used to think I was the only person crazy enough to ever try and milk a Shetland. And I have since heard there is someone else in the world who has done it. So (laughs) I'm not as unique as I thought I was. Um, but I'm definitely different and maybe a little weird for even wanting to try that. Hey, if the yogurt's good enough, maybe more <laughs> people should be doing it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the goats um, is pretty much how that's the goats is where 99.9% of all of our dairy um, mm-hmm. has come from all along. We had a Jersey milk cow for a while. We had Irish Dexters for a while. I really feel like goats are so much easier to handle because of their smaller size. Um, you know, even with like a friendly cow, like if they, they do get stubborn sometimes, you know, and, and I don't know, 800 pounds or 900 pounds versus 135 pounds. Who's going to win? You know, the 800 pound animal has the advantage. So it's definitely more challenging. And, they can do a lot more damage even um, when they don't mean to just because of their size. You know, my daughter wound up with like a really, really horrible bruise on her leg one time from a cow kicking her when she was milking. And, you know, you can once you can get kicked by a goat, but they don't have nearly as much power behind <laughs> their legs. It's the only reason I still have my legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, I really, and, and a lot of people think that goat milk tastes nasty and it shouldn't usually, um, so there's a couple of different nutritional deficiencies that can cause issues with the flavor of the milk. Usually though, it's just a hygiene issue. Like I know in the very beginning with us, we were so clueless. We had no idea that you were supposed to wipe off the udder or put the first squirts of milk into a separate container and so I would just go out there with a bucket and milk into a bucket and come in and we would, we would use it. And that actually not such a great idea. Sometimes it was fine and sometimes it did taste nasty. And the reason is because goats and actually all animals have harmless bacteria that lives on their skin. And even though it's harmless, it doesn't taste good. And the funny thing is that my daughter got her PhD in biological chemistry. When she was working on that, um, she did there was a dairy in Africa that um, wanted to hire her lab at the university to create a filter that would filter out the bacteria in the milk because they had all these small farmers that were bringing their cow's milk into the dairies and um, it tasted really nasty Mm. because they didn't have a way to cool the milk quickly. And so they would bring, and they didn't, their hygiene was terrible. And so they would, they would bring the milk in and, um, I asked my daughter like, well, don't they, do they pasteurize it? And she said, yeah, but dead bacteria still tastes gross. Sure. Sure. And I'm like, oh yeah. So that's just something to keep in mind that, um, 
And you don't, and we're not talking about like scrubbing it down here with, you know, Clorox or anything. Just like I just use a washcloth, a wet washcloth to just wipe it off, get the dirt off. And then the really poor, important part is getting those first squirts of milk into another container mm. because research has shown that there is more bacteria in the first two or three squirts of milk because it's just been sitting in the tea, you know, mm. since the last time you milked them. So it's had a chance for the bacteria from the skin to get into that orifice and start to grow a little bit. So if you, you just basically need to flush the pipes before you start collecting milk for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, well then let's talk about raising animals for meat. And this is often where people kind of veer off in different directions. They like the concept of having animals, but thinking of raising them for one end product is different than, you know, giving them a good life for a long time for either eggs or, or milk or whatever. How do you approach that? Well, it's funny because when we moved out here, we were vegetarians. We had been for 14 years and we had no plans to change that. We just had chickens for eggs. We only had the goats for milk. We only had the sheep for wool. Um, and we weren't going to eat anything. And then um, because we did get a couple of roosters with our hens, they had babies. And within a couple of years, the ratio was, uh, was about uh, was 40 hens and 24 roosters. <laughs> you got to deal with that. Yeah. And so, and it really didn't matter that they had, you know, unlimited space to run around. The roosters um, did not like the competition for the hens. They, a rooster thinks he needs to be having sex all day long every day. And so they were constantly jumping on the hens. My hens were literally run ragged. They had no feathers on their back because the roosters were jumping on them all the time. Mm -hmm. And then the roosters started fighting with each other. And then one day, a rooster um, had been in a fight and he got his eye poked out and he was completely blind. And so then we had this long discussion about what do we do with this rooster? And it's like, well, he's blind, you know, he can't, he can't live a normal chicken life anymore. I think that, you know, we should put him down, which then once we got over the idea, like, okay, we're going to kill him. Then, then it was like, well, you know, that's good organic chicken. Yeah. I used to, I, re, I know it's been 14 years, but I really liked chicken back when I ate it. Um, <laughs> it seems like it'd be a waste of good meat if we just killed him and buried him. And so we wound up butchering him and, you know, using, I had a book that, that talked about butchering. So we used the book and we, and the funny thing is by the time we had this big, long discussion, we went out there and he had died. <laughs> waiting for us to decide his fate he had died and so like a week later it happened again and the discussion was a little shorter this time but again by the time we got back out there the chicken had died and a few days later it happened again and that was when um that was the first time we actually had to put down a chicken, you know, like, so, it was, so we had practiced butchering two chickens that were already dead before actually having, you know, to chop off a head of a live one, which was very different. Um, and then we had a really big family conversation about, okay, well, is it humane to just let them kill each other and, and keep doing what we're doing the way we're doing it? Um, because it's not, it doesn't seem like a very pleasant way to go, you know, um, no, it's a very natural living environment to have that many roosters in close proximity. 
exactly. Right. Yeah. So um, we finally decided that we needed to reduce the population of roosters and we did. And, and after that we were like, okay, we are going to, we're going to start eating, you know, the roosters when they're chicks, you know, well, or not when they're chicks, but you know, like when they're four or five months old, we're going <laughs> to, we're just going to eat them before they reach sexual maturity. So that's what we did. And then from there, it was like, all of a sudden, like, oh my gosh, we've got too many sheep. Um, and I had never even had lamb in my life, but um, that was when we decided like, hmm, well, we don't need this much wool. I think we should start butchering some of the weathers, some of the sheep. And, and for years, I said I could never eat a goat. Like, okay, I know we started eating our chickens and our sheep, but I couldn't eat a goat because they're just too much like dogs to me. And then one year, we wound up with 29 bucklings. <laughs> oh, that, and that they, changed the conversation. Yeah, exactly. And so we wound up butchering nine of them. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, you have to you have to face some of these hard conversations sometimes. And my big thing about being a vegetarian was the factory farm conditions. You know, like I felt guilty. You know, these animals are miserable, live a miserable existence in a building. You know, the chickens have their beaks cut off. The um, cows never, they, most of them never go outside in their whole life. They don't actually, you know, like pigs are stuck in concrete buildings. They never get to root a day in their life. Like I look at my pigs rooting and think, oh my gosh, how horrible must that be to live on concrete and to be unable to do this super pig thing, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole different context. And, I, you know, even as someone who does eat meat, I completely agree with those sentiments. You know, I, haven't, I have been vegetarian in the past. I haven't gone as far as a, a vegan uh, diet. But I, I think, you know, even, even people who are very proud meat eaters and, and have moral reasons why they think that it's correct for them and, and other people, I, I don't know any of them who agree with that type of industrial farming either. So, you know, everybody kind of comes to their conclusions based on their own experiences. And it's interesting to hear how your opinions and, and your partner's opinions about this changed because of the, the difference in lifestyle and how much more closely connected you were to the process. Right. Yeah. And now, you know, it, it's just every year now we plan actually, it's like, okay, we're going to raise chickens, you know, for meat. And so uh, moving on now from, from animals a little bit, let's go to two of the products that a lot of people don't really think of, especially in Northern climates, first of all, um, producing for themselves and that's sugar. Mm hmm. Tell me a little bit about the options that you found for producing your own sugar and some ways that you found success with that on your own land. Well, maple syrup was not even on my radar when we moved out here. And um, uh, probably about 12 years ago or so, um, I saw somebody on Facebook talk about gathering sap because they had a big ice storm and a limb got broken off of a maple tree in their yard. And so they put a bucket under it to collect the sap that was dripping out of this place where this limb broke. And I was like, Oh my gosh, we have maple trees here. And, um, so that was February, you know, during maple syrup season. So over the course of the next year, I totally prepared us for, producing our own maple syrup after that. You know, during the summer and the fall, I was out there, 
you know, identifying the trees and trying to figure out what kind of maple trees we had and um, how we were going to identify them in the winter when there were no leaves. Because I mean, we do have 32 acres, so um, we needed to figure out how to identify the trees in the winter so that we could tap the right ones come February, and then we ordered supplies, and then we did it, and it was pretty crazy that first year. Um, our kitchen was completely out of commission for like days because we used every pot we had to boil and it was a nightmare and <laughs> there was water running down our walls. <laughs> oh my goodness. It was just terrible the first year, and, but we got it all figured out and you know, we we figured out how to um, get the, um, basically we, we got this big 10 gallon pot and started boiling on our deck. <laughs> there you go. And so the only thing we do is at the, at the very end, um, we'll finish it on the stove in the kitchen, which is fine because that doesn't dump much, much humidity into the air. Yeah. 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 So um, wh what does that condense down into if you've got uh, a gallon of, of raw sap? What so do you it end can, up with? Um, so it's kind of funny because the books tell you that it's 33 to 1. And before we got started, um, we were trying to identify that we kept arguing over the fact, like my husband is like, I don't think these are sugar maples. I think they're Norwegian maples. <clears throat> and I'm like, well, all maples give you sap. It's just that the sugar maple <laughs> gives you more. Um, and so, mm, I don't know, maybe we, they are Norwegian maples um, because <laughs> ours boils down and because we've got, you know, like over 10 years of data now and ours boils down at 40 to 1. Okay. Um, so I don't know if we just have bad sugar maples or if they really are Norwegian maples or what, but <laughs> 40 to one. So it's a huge boil down. Um, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah, that's a lot of humidity for a house. I could see why you moved it outside. Yeah, exactly. But so you've also tried honey as well. How's that gone? Uh, we're not good with bees. No? <laughs> no. So we, you know, we did it for a few years. We had a couple of hives going and it's funny, I thought we were going to be really great at it because there's a wild hive that lives in this oak tree in our front yard that's like several hundred years old. Um, like really, it'd probably take about four people around it to join hands. It's wow. so big. And um, there's a wild hive that lives there. And so I thought, oh, obviously we have a great place for bees. So we've got some uh, Langstroth hives. And um, it's not, you know, I definitely would not call myself a bee expert. But we've done it, um, and the um, we do we find the honey. I'm sorry, the maple syrup is so much easier, and especially because like last year we got five gallons. Last year was our best year ever. Um, in our worst year, I think we got a gallon and a half. So we get a lot of maple. Yeah, that's syrup. not bad. Yeah, um, and now that our kids are gone. We're even talking about like, hmm, maybe we'll skip this year because I think we still have, like when our kids were here, we could go through five gallons of maple syrup. Um, but I think we still have three or four gallons left from last year now. Because mm. we don't bake like we did. We used to bake like crazy and we would use maple syrup in the baking instead of sugar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, with that transition, I mean, I'm sure that like you talked about with the animals too just not having to provide for that many people, you can really start to scale down and just uh, work on the things that you enjoy that give you the benefits you're looking for instead of having like this whole, this whole circus for so many people. Right. Yeah. And like, yeah. we haven't even used half of the maple syrup 
from from last year. So well, that stuff keeps forever, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. There you go. <laughs> well, here, so let's talk now about the homegrown business because I mean, obviously, it's all well and good to produce so many things for yourself, but there's a lot of reasons why you might want to look at making a business out of your efforts, not only to justify your overheads of production, but a lot of home scale enterprises can like generate a respectable income and be a key part of the independent lifestyle that homesteading represents to so many people. So tell me about your own experiences in doing business from your homestead. Um, we've done a few different things. So mostly the main thing that we've done is selling animals, um, either for breeding stock or for meat. If you're going to sell for breeding stock, you need to make sure you've got really good quality animals. You know, if you just buy some cheap animals off a of Craigslist, then you will be selling cheap animals on Craigslist because yeah. <laughs> nobody is selling, you know, bucket busting milkers for 50 bucks on Craigslist or anything like that. So, you know, you need to start out with some really good animals and then constantly think about like, how are you going to breed up to make even better animals mm -hmm. um, and to keep records, you know, like we've got on the, we have a separate goat website where we've got like all other pedigrees and, um, milk records and um, information about them and their kidding records and all that kind of stuff. Um, so people get a lot of information about the animals because everybody's kind of looking for something a little different. You know, some people want animals that are going to be really good milkers. Some don't care so much about the milk as they do about the personality. So you have to keep all that in mind. Um, as for, as for selling meat, that's a really good one too. Um, I prefer selling the whole animal because you don't have to find as many customers. You don't have to store the meat. And you also don't have to deal with like the government regulations of selling meat because technically you're selling animals. Um, you know, when I take, say for example, I take three or four pigs to the locker, you know, I tell them at the locker, you know, this pig is for Jane Doe. This one's for John Smith. This is their phone number, um, email address. And then they call them and say, how do you want us to process your animal? Mm -hmm. And that's um, really a good way to go. I was at a conference once where somebody said that they thought that you should have, you should be selling like 100 animals a year before you start looking into selling individual cuts. And, mm. and that's one thing too, like about, Selling to restaurants and stuff, a lot of people don't realize how much, like restaurants want to have a consistent supply. So if you want to get really big with something, um, like you do, you, you, that means raising a lot of animals. So like um, I know one restaurant, they go through three pigs a week. Wow. Um, so, you know, if they were going to get pigs from us, like, that would be, you know, like if my pig, if I had a pig that had nine piglets, that's only enough. That'd be like three weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, you really have to start to <clears throat> adapt your business model to the market you're trying to sell to at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so among the other businesses that you've tried, is it really a matter of navigating the regulations first or most of them pretty easy to get kind of bootstrapped and then as you grow bigger you can look into what it takes to to make them a little more official or uh, adapt them to whatever market you're trying to sell to 
Food is the most challenging because that's what there, you've got so many regulations surrounding food. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people have asked me why I don't have a um, cheese making operation because I teach cheese making. Um, but it's because of the regulations. Like it would be more than a six figure investment for us to have to build the infrastructure, not only the milking parlor, um, but also the cheese making facility because if you're going to sell cheese, you can't just keep milking in your barn and then using your kitchen. You have to build a completely separate facility. You have to like change shoes when you're going from your milking parlor into your cheese making kitchen. Like it's very different than making it for yourself Yeah. when you start yeah. making it for other people. And then, Are there less regulations though if you're just selling directly to a customer? Or even that doesn't doesn't fly. Nope, doesn't matter. Mm. Um, and in Illinois, we used to have it really great in Illinois in terms of like just selling raw milk. If you were selling raw milk directly to the customer in Illinois up until about four or five years ago, um, if they brought their container to the farm um, to get the milk, then you were fine. You could sell raw milk to people. And that's basically because there was no law. And so you were slipping through a loophole, which was um, if you put the milk in a bottle and sold it, you were a bottling plant. Uh. And so some brilliant person figured out like back in the 70s, well, hey, if somebody just brings their container to the farm, then you're not a bottling plant. So then there's no regulations for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the commercial dairies got when raw milk started to get really popular like 10 years ago, the commercial dairies got wind of the fact that they were losing business to some of these raw milk farmers. And so they lobbied the health department to actually create raw milk rules. So now you have to be a certified raw milk dairy in Illinois to sell raw milk. There are a few states where you can sell raw milk, but it is only raw milk. Um, you know, if anybody's listening to this and going, oh, how about a herd share? The law in Illinois specifically made herd shares illegal. And that's the case in some states. So, and it's crazy. Like, we're right here in Illinois. You have to be a certified raw milk dairy now. Um, in Indiana, right next door, you can have herd shares. And in Iowa, right next door in the other direction, raw milk of all sorts is completely illegal. So... Wow. You can see like it's it's so different right here these three states right next to each other and it's totally different for each state yeah it's it's daunting <laughs> and um having recently moved over to spain too and looking at my options for what kind of small home business i can get bootstrapped once we find our land here too and even just <laughs> getting started looking through the regulations that happen here too i'm just like wow this is uh this is gonna be harder than i thought it makes mm-hmm. uh, some of the things that I remember from back in the States are, oh, I'm really missing Guatemala and their yeah. general lawlessness. <laughs> right. I mean, there was a lot of compromises, but one of the things that you could do is everything. That was pretty nice. Um, I'm not, of course, advocating for anybody to move there and just start doing anything, but it's just, there's a whole lot more lax and there is a lot of benefit to that too. If you're, if you're the type of person to to take advantage of doing really high quality work and knowing that you can exceed certain standards and just know that, uh, you know, somebody's not going to come nitpicking and you're going to have to follow some bureaucracy just because it exists, even whether, you know, it applies specifically to your context or not. 
Right. Yeah. Everybody has to kind of figure that out for themselves based on where they're at. And Mm. there's not any kind of, you know, uh, cookie cutter advice on like, these are the things you need to do. It's, it's just part of the process if, if you're going to make this happen. Right. And you can make goat milk soap um, and sell that fairly easily because since it's not a food product, the health department doesn't really care about it. Um, once, and it's kind of, if you're, it's easy to get started with goat milk soap because if you're just selling to some friends, um, the main thing I tell people is just make sure you have a sales tax license. That's really about the only place I've heard of people getting into trouble if they're just doing things small scale. Um, even if you're just like going to craft fairs and things like that. Now, if you want to start selling in stores, then you should probably um, start looking at good manufacturing practices mm-hmm. um, and things like that. But as long as you're, but that gives you a chance to get your feet wet, you know, like, and that's what we did. Like we started making goat milk soap and we got a pretty big online business going with the goat milk soap. And then it got to a point where I was kind of like, Oh my God, I don't want to make any more soap. (laughs) It just becomes another job at a certain point. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I started doing, like I sat down one day, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can make so much money making soap. And then I sat down one day and did the math. And it was like, wow, do I really, like, I, I do I really want to make soap for four hours every day? Oof. I don't think so. Yeah, that's a hard question to answer there. Yeah, like part of the fun for me with the soap making in the beginning was playing around with different recipes and experimenting and stuff. And once you have a business and you're selling a product, people expect consistency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... No, I agree. I was, the fun is uh, all in coming up with the product and toying with recipes and dreaming up the cute little packaging. They get an extra little bit out of it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so look, we have covered so many options for aspiring homesteaders, and there's so many more in this book that we didn't have time to cover. But what advice would you give to people who might be feeling overwhelmed by all of this and and just think that it's way too much work or it's beyond them if they don't have experience what what would you tell them well it's definitely not beyond your ability because as i said in the beginning i was a clueless city slicker we made a ton of mistakes that's why i wrote homegrown and handmade the kind of the motto behind that book was i made all the mistakes so you don't have to mm-hmm. there are sidebars all throughout the book then the name of the sidebars is I wish I'd known. And this was basically one of the mistakes I made in the early days because I didn't know better. Um, so you don't have to make that same mistake. And it's the thing is like, it, it's really not that hard. Like, you know, yeah, if you've, you know, if you've got 15 people in your family and you want to produce the food for all of them, that's going to be a lot of work, but you also have a lot of people to help you. Um, and so that I think is one of the, the big things to remember too, is that if you do have a big family, make sure that they're on board with it and that they are willing to help because that's one of the complaints I hear from people sometimes, you know, like I, like somebody who's got like six children and the children don't want to do anything, you know? And so she's out there, you know, doing, she's, she's working in the garden and milking the goats and dealing with the chickens and doing all the cooking and, and everything. So you know, in our case, like both of my daughters loved the goats. And so they helped with the goats a lot. Our son, you know, helped with the chickens and the pigs. 
and my husband took care of all the building um, and fencing and all the infrastructure. Like we all, everybody had different jobs, you know, and did different things. And for the most part, it was usually whatever you enjoyed doing. And in fact, the chicken job actually got passed around quite a bit because um, we would sell, back then we used to sell eggs to friends and whoever took care of the chickens got to keep all the money from selling the eggs. Mm. So the kids were always saying, you know, I should take over the egg business because I would do a better job. (laughs) (laughs) Put a little competition in there for them. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that worked well. Yeah. I mean, with the different people that I've been able to speak with and even from my own experience in visiting other homesteads, building one with friends and, you know, living on them all in different contexts and different parts of the world. It's, it's, it's really inspiring. I mean, at the end of the day, everyone has to make decisions about what it is they want to focus on because you just can't have, you know, (laughs) you can't have a hundred enterprise small homestead. It's just way too much work to be constantly changing tasks. And you, you do have to figure out what you're going to kind of focus on and and niche down on. But Mm -hmm. I mean, there's something for everybody in those. If your thing is like, like you said, you don't want to spend that much time making soap or, you know, um, you don't want to have the commitment of looking after animals or whatever it might be. There are other options that can fit within what it is that you're passionate about, what you want to produce for yourself. And uh, even within like connecting with community. Yes, I know absolutely. a lot of people who really advocate for like, don't try and do it all yourself. Make sure right. that you connect with a good community around you and share tasks and do extra of the thing that you want to do and provide that extra as like barter or trade with other people Mm -hmm. and creating a strong community around this lifestyle is at least as important as trying to do it all yourself. Right. And that's one of the things, like one of the things that we're going to cut back on um, coming up, um, we still have seven pigs left and these will be our last seven pigs. Once these seven pigs are Mm. gone, we're not going to raise them anymore. And one of the reasons I feel comfortable not raising pigs anymore is because I know someone who raises pigs organically outside and I've been to his farm many times and, you know, I feel like they are doing at least as good a job as we are, if not better, because they're actually feeding hundred percent organic feed, which we can't afford. So, you know, I, so, and I know a store where they sell their meat and I also know I can buy like a whole hog or a half hog from them if I want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, those kind of connections end up being really key because yeah. <laughs> trying to do it all is is overwhelming. And I mean, I love the example that you've shared about, you know, the, the variety that you've been able to maintain, but also knowing when to scale down when it's appropriate for the changes in your life too. And that's not a loss. That's, that's an adjustment. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And then that's what everybody has to understand. Like it's not, you know, people used to ask me like, well, what do you do if you want orange juice? I'm like, well, if I really wanted orange juice, I'd go to the store and buy it. You know? right. <laughs> like, it's not all or nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Um, well, I, this, I mean, I love this. This is a very liberating way of looking at it. And, and it gives so much more of a balanced opportunity for people who either are not ready to go all the way in or are daunted by all the things that they'd have to learn in the process. I mean, um, it's kind of been a common theme through the people that I've spoken to up until now. Most of them never grew up in a homesteading context and, you know, figured out a way to step by step and mistake by mistake, get to the point where 
you know, they couldn't see themselves living any other kind of lifestyle now, even though it's morphed over time. Um, so anyway, Deborah, thank you so much for, for your perspective and for your, for your book as well. I really enjoyed it. Um, before we go, can you tell our listeners how they can contact you, find out more and find your other books, events, classes? You've got a lot on offer. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I think, and that's the thing too. I'm kind of, I'm kind of moving from like doing it all on the farm to like doing it all online. Mm. So um, my website is thriftyhomesteader.com and you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest all at Thrifty Homesteader. And I also have the Thrifty Homesteader Academy where I teach online classes about um, raising goats and birthing goats and all that kind of fun stuff and making cheese and making soap. And then um, I just launched a podcast recently called For the Love of Goats, which I think the name says it all. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm all over the place. And I'm going to be at a couple Mother Earth News Fairs coming up this year too. Fantastic. All great stuff. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time, Deborah. It was a real pleasure catching up with you. Um, let's try and do this again in the future. I, I've I've definitely got plans if I'm able to get the land that we're looking at now on uh, bringing some goats into the mix. So <laughs> you might Yay. be getting a call from me again soon. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Take care. You have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Bye. All right. That wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.